Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the new JPO podcast brought to you by The Journal and POSNA. I'm Carter Clement, one of your co-hosts, and as usual, I'm broadcasting to you from Children's Hospital in beautiful uptown New Orleans. Over the next 20 minutes, we are going to bring you part one of our review of The Journal's May-June episode. This will include four featured articles, including one we're particularly excited about on the importance of sleep in adolescence. We'll also host authors David Skaggs from CHLA and Keith Baldwin from CHOP. We'll start with a systematic review and meta-analysis from the sports section of the journal out of Brown University entitled, Lack of Sleep and Sports Injuries in Adolescence. This subject has received substantial attention over the last five years since a JPO article from Children's Hospital of Los Angeles reported that chronic lack of sleep is associated with increased injuries in adolescent athletes. In the current study, the authors sought to study both chronic and acute lack of sleep, where acute means poor sleep the night before a sporting event, and chronic refers to the average sleep over at least seven days. They found seven published articles with statistics on the relationship between sleep and sports injuries. Five focused on chronic lack of sleep. These were all considered high quality and all reported increased injuries among sleep-deprived athletes. After pooling data from these studies, the authors found an odds ratio of 1.6. The other two studies considered the effect of acute sleep deprivation. These studies were lower quality and had mixed results, so the authors could not draw a firm conclusion about the risks of poor sleep the night before athletic participation. Regarding chronic sleep deprivation, the authors were unable to say exactly how much sleep you need, but they were able to conclude that sleeping less than 8 hours on average or having frequent awakenings raises the risk of sports injuries. This study provides valuable information about a modifiable risk factor, but, as the authors point out, a great deal of additional research is needed in this area. I now have the pleasure of welcoming a guest commentator, David Skaggs from CHLA, who authored the work I mentioned a little earlier. Dr. Skaggs, thanks so much for joining us. Ah, great to be asked to join you. Thank you very much for this opportunity to talk about this important topic. To start off, would you mind telling us a little bit about that previous research on the relationship between sleep and sports injuries you conducted? So in Journal of Pediatric Orthopedics, we published a study in 2014 that showed that chronic lack of sleep is associated with increased sports injuries in adolescent athletes. We worked with a school named Harvard-Westlake that is extremely intense academically and athletically, and they just happened to keep fantastic records in the athletic department of injuries. Any injury that requires missing practice or going to a doctor has to be recorded. And then we were able to poll the athletes over time. We found out that those athletes who slept an average of less than eight hours per night were 70% more likely to have an injury reported than those who slept greater than eight hours a night. Now, in that study, we also found out the higher grade you were in school, the more likely you were to have an injury. But that may be a confounding variable because there's a lot of evidence that shows the higher you are in grade, the less you sleep. What we found fascinating about that study was the effect size of sleep. Very rarely in medicine do we see effect sizes of 70%. And what I wondered is if it's this big of an effect, how come we haven't known about this before? How come no one studied this before? And I'm a little bit worried that it's because nobody makes money off of it. You know, no one makes money off of sleeping, so nobody's driving that research forwards or promoting the research and teaching the world about it. So I think that's our job as physicians to make sure that we 
discuss this with our athletes, discuss it with coaches, athletic departments, youth sports groups, parents, anyone who will listen to us. And it is one of the unique things we have as physicians. People tend to listen to us. So I think that this is a great way to help improve students from not getting injured as well as other things. Now, Dr. Skaggs, when you and I first broached the subject of adolescent sleep, you were quick to share with me an eye-opening report from the Center for Disease Control. Would you mind sharing your takeaways from that report with our audience? So a fascinating morbidian mortality report came out in 2016 from the CDC. And they're looking at sleep and injury-related risk behaviors amongst high school students. And they were able to analyze data from over 50,000 high school students uh, over the course of about five years. And what they found out is 77% of 12th graders slept less than seven hours a night. And that means that the majority of our 12th graders are clearly not getting enough sleep. They also found that 60% of ninth graders slept less than seven hours a night. So as the kids go further along in high school, they tend to sleep less. Now, the fascinating part about this study is they found that a lack of sleep correlated to more risk-taking behaviors. So those kids who slept less than or equal seven hours a night on school nights were more likely to report injury-related risk behaviors like not using a bicycle helmet, not using a seatbelt, driving with someone who's drinking, drinking and driving yourself, or texting while driving when compared with students who slept nine hours a night. So what we can conclude from all these together is if you're not getting enough sleep, one, you have more risk-taking behavior, and two, if you're an athlete, you get hurt more. Now, appropriately, most of our audience is orthopedists who certainly have experience being sleep-deprived, either acutely or chronically, and trying to perform to the best of their ability. I know you have some interest in the area of sleep and surgery. Would you mind discussing any of the relevant literature in this area and your takeaways? So there's a Harvard Business Review that came out in October 2018 looking at the effects of sleep on leadership. And there's a few studies out there, and one of them found that when the boss slept poorly, the boss was more likely to exhibit abusive behavior the next day and there was measurably less engagement amongst the subordinates. So if the boss didn't get a good night's sleep, then the whole unit was suppressed, which sounds logical that they had you know, people that actually looked at this in a research-driven fashion. They also reported on a study where a leader gave a speech, and those leaders who didn't sleep adequately the night before were rated statistically lower than those who did have a good night's sleep. And if you combine this with what we're finding now for operative performance and, you know, teams, if you're, if you have a good team in the OR, the spine surgery will go quicker with less blood loss. And there's decent studies showing that if the team leader behaves badly, the team performs less well. So it's probably intuitive to most of us as surgeons, but now we're approaching the point where it's almost research proven that if surgeons don't get as good of a night of sleep, they're probably in a worse mood or a worse team leader and the team will perform less well. And what most of the studies have shown is when you're sleep deprived, the first thing that goes is mood and attitude and happiness, which is the important leadership skills. And it really is pretty far down the road before you start to lose your dexterity. So while older kind of you know, studies have said, ah, you can stay up all night and operate. Well, maybe you can from a dexterity perspective, but you really can't from a 
leadership perspective, and I would say even from a judgment perspective. Um, a lot of studies show that with decreased sleep, you're losing judgment. Now with that, I'm pleased to say Dr. Skaggs will stick around as we turn to the spine section of the journal to discuss an article he recently authored entitled, Chance Fractures in the Pediatric Population Are Often Misdiagnosed. The work was performed at CHLA, and anecdotally, the authors noticed a handful of misdiagnosed chance fractures at their institution. So, they retrospectively reviewed all patients with flexion injuries of the spine over five years. They identified 19 compression fractures and 7 true chance fractures, which are unstable three-column injuries. The standard of care for chance fractures is surgical stabilization. However, only one of the seven patients noted in the article was initially diagnosed as a chance fracture and treated operatively. Five were misdiagnosed as either compression fractures, a burst fracture, or muscular pain. These misdiagnoses were usually by a neurosurgeon or an orthopedic spine surgeon. One patient was correctly diagnosed with an osseous chance fracture, but was treated with bracing and unfortunately developed painful kyphosis. The other six ultimately underwent surgery and had good outcomes. After misdiagnosis, all patients eventually returned with chronic back pain, but the average delay in diagnosis was 95 days. The authors did not find that mechanism of injury or amount of kyphosis was predictive of a chance fracture rather than a compression fracture. Ultimately, they recommend a high index of suspicion for posterior element injuries, both on exam and imaging. We'll now return to Dr. Skaggs to discuss this article and its implications. Dr. Skaggs, thanks again for being here. I think it could be helpful to review some basics. What exactly do you look for in exam and imaging to rule out a chance fracture? Yeah, so one of the things that is always present in an acute chance fracture is tenderness and swelling right along the spinous processes. Everybody makes jokes about people no longer doing physical examination, but it's really true in this population. So let's just define a chance fracture as the posterior elements fail in tension and the anterior elements fail in compression. So the posterior elements fail in tension. It's usually the ligaments tear, but it could be that the bone fails in tension. Either way, there will be bleeding and tenderness immediately around the spinous processes, which is quite palpable in most kids. So I'd say, first off, it's very important, absolutely critical to just touch the person's back. Do you feel swelling there? Does it hurt? If it does, I would say there's a presumed chance fracture until proven otherwise. Now, from an imaging perspective, there's a couple of giveaways. One, and we're talking only about acute fractures here because unfortunately it becomes more difficult in chronic fractures. So under imaging of an acute fracture, one should be able to see either a separation of the spinous processes, and that could be seen on an MRI or a CT or even a plain fill. Now in an MRI in particular, you not only see separation of the bony elements, you also see swelling. There's generally very significant hematoma that's subcutaneous that results from the tearing of the ligaments or the bone. And a giveaway for a chance fracture on an MRI is seeing lots of subcutaneous hematoma. Now in the anterior column, whether it's MRI, CT, or plain films, there's usually some element of compression along the vertebrae. Not always, but generally there's some extension in the back and there's some compression in the front. Great, thank you. That's a good review of the diagnosis of chance fractures. Do you have a general approach or algorithm for the treatment of these injuries? Yes, yeah, so there is a minority of chance fractures that do not require operative treatment. That's when it's a pure bony chance. 
So let's imagine you have a bony transfer fracture at L1, for example, and the spinous process of L1 has separated. Part of it has gone cephalad, part of it has gone caudad, and a fracture line goes right through the spinous process, through the pedicles, and into the bone. Now, in that case, if you're able to correct the deformity, most likely in a brace, it would be an antipyphotic type of brace, and if you have imaging verification that the fracture site is closed down and the spine is well aligned, this should heal. Bony fractures heal, and it should really be healed probably in about six weeks, or I'd probably wait eight weeks for most people to make sure it's healed, and probably even get a CT scan to confirm it's healed. That's a small minority of the chance fractures. Now, the much more common chance fractures involve soft tissue tearing of the posterior elements. And if you think about those posterior ligaments tearing, the belief is that they do not heal on their own. There was a multi-center study out of Children's Hospital Los Angeles published in the Journal of Pediatric Orthopedics in 2011 that showed that when chance fractures were treated non-operatively, they were much more likely to end up in kyphosis and an abnormal amount of kyphosis. So really based upon that paper, as well as a much larger adult experience, people believe if you're going to get the spine in correct alignment to last a lifetime, you need to do surgery if there's soft tissue tearing involved in the posterior elements. Now, the good part is the surgery is not exceptionally dangerous. It's not exceptionally difficult. These days, most people will perform the surgery with pedicle screw fixation and perform a fusion across the ligaments that have been torn. So let's say, for example, a chance fracture occurs and the ligaments between L1 and L2 spinous processes are torn. We would consider putting pedicle screws in at L1 and L2, compressing across the rods until you have physiological alignment and then destroying the L1, L2 joints and placing in bone grafts so you'll have a limited fusion across those two vertebrae. Now, chance fractures sometimes are a little bit more complicated. Sometimes they may involve a pedicle or a facet joint, and in those cases, a longer fusion may be needed. So I'd highly recommend both an MRI and a fine-cut CT scan to see exactly how much bony involvement there is. Most of the time, there is not any neurological involvement. If there is, that's a whole different story. You should probably consider getting neurosurgery involved, consider decompression at the time of surgery, but neurological involvement is not common in chance fractures in teenagers. Similarly, as we review the basics, how do you think about the prognosis of these fractures in adolescence? If a chance fracture is identified acutely and treated correctly and it heals, uh, either the rare instance of bony fusion through a bony chance fracture or through spinal instrumentation and fusion, the children should be able to get back to their normal lives within three months, including all aspects of sports. Most of the time, I do not limit children who have healed chance fractures really in any way. Got it. Are there any other takeaways from this article you'd like to highlight? Uh, the other point I'd like to make is, as our paper pointed out, Seven out of the seven chance fractures we saw at our institution were missed initially by spine surgeons. Um, so this is an injury which the pediatric orthopedic surgeon has to be aware they may be seeing very late. And a couple of kids I saw who saw multiple doctors and they were kind of written off as being malingerers or sent to the pain service or given injection when the poor kids just had missed chance fractures. 
So in the case of chronic pain, one should consider the possibility of a missed chance fracture. Now the good news is, once the correct diagnosis was made and the treatment was instituted, that at that point included sometimes osteotomies to realign the spine, the children did well. Dr. Skaggs, thank you for joining us. Hey, well, thanks a lot. This is, uh, this is fun. Next, I'll be handing things off for the last two articles of the day. This is your co-host, Julia Sanders, assistant professor at the University of Colorado. I'm here with Dr. Keith Baldwin from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, who will be discussing his paper entitled Predicting Periarticular Infection in Children with Septic Arthritis of the Hip. Regionally Derived Criteria May Not Apply to All Populations. Dr. Baldwin, thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks, thanks for having me, Julia, and I would like to thank my co-authors as well. Perfect. So first, can you tell me what inspired you to look at your own institution's experience with periarticular infections in septic arthritis? Sure. So we had read Dr. Rosenfeld's study out of Texas with great interest. Just as a refresher, he had published a set of five criteria, which when three or more were met, recommended obtaining an MRI to evaluate periarticular infections in the setting of septic arthritis. As a reminder, those criteria were age over 3.6 years, symptom duration of more than three days, CRP of greater than 13.8, absolute neutrophil count of greater than 8,600, and platelet count less than 314,000. And we had just felt from our personal experience at our institution that we were seeing a lot more isolated cases of septic arthritis and that the criteria for these MRI scans might differ geographically uh, as the literature had shown different organisms and patterns of infection occur in different areas geographically. Great. And uh, what did your results demonstrate in the Northeast? So we looked at 53 hips uh, that underwent uh, irrigation and debridement for septic arthritis. 20 of these patients had preoperative MRIs, with seven that had been noted to have periarticular infections. Six of these seven patients met uh, Rosenfeld's criteria. However, uh, six of the 13 patients with no periarticular infection also met these criteria. Therefore, in, in our population, the sensitivity of the criteria was 86%, specificity was 54%, and there was a false positive rate of half. So we found that this actually contrasted Rosenfeld study, which reported 90% sensitivity, 67% specificity, and a false positive rate of only 33%. And of note, 11 of our patients that did not get MRIs had more than three of the Rosenfeld criteria and were successfully surgically treated with just isolated arthrotomy only. Very interesting. And so what is the standard protocol for identifying septic arthritis and periarticular infection at CHOP? So at CHOP, we do not routinely obtain an MRI as a preoperative study, uh, mainly because of logistical challenges. The, the only children that get MRIs in our institution preoperatively are children where the diagnosis is in question. So we, we typically reserve advanced imaging for patients who fail to respond to initial intervention or where patients where the diagnosis is in question and either had a negative tap or had highly suggestive symptoms with an otherwise negative workup. Great. And what are your thoughts on the geographical differences that may be responsible for your findings? Many institutions across the United States have reported different rates of isolated septic arthritis, periarticular myositis, intramuscular abscess, osteomyelitis, and a myriad of other musculoskeletal infections. And we think this is due to regional differences and sort of genetic level differences in common species of bacteria and virulence factors that are expressed in various locales. And what recommendations do you have for our listeners for identifying periarticular infections at their own institutions? 
So I would say it's a team approach. People need to have some sense of what the common bacteria and virulence factors are in their own area. And if you tend to be at a location where, you know, say, for example, Lyme's disease is more of an issue or isolated septic arthritis is more of an issue, then I think that you can proceed to treatment and, and do as we do at CHOP and sort of work backwards. If, if the, the original treatment didn't work, then you will go, you know, you step up your diagnostic imaging. Whereas if you tend to have patients coming in with more myositis, periarticular abscesses, really bad osteomyelitis with uh, sympathetic effusions and that type of thing, I think MRI should be one of your first steps. But it basically is, is just sort of knowing uh, your own practice area. Perfect. That's great advice. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Baldwin. You're welcome. Thank you. Next, I'm going to discuss with you an article entitled Comparison of Clinical Findings of Congenital Muscular Torticollis Between Patients with and Without Sternocleidomastoid Lesions, as Determined by Ultrasonography. This paper is by Dr. Han and colleagues out of Seoul, Korea. The authors retrospectively reviewed 182 patients with congenital muscular torticollis and identified 74 patients with sternocleidomastoid lesions and 108 without, based on ultrasound findings. They discovered that the lesion group presented much earlier and required a longer course of therapy than the non-lesion group. Breach presentation was more common in the lesion group, while plagiocephaly was more common in the non-lesion group. Interestingly, they also noted that the non-lesion group was more limited in head tilting than in head rotation, while the patients with sternocleidomastoid lesions had restrictions in both. Also, a pattern of head tilting and rotation in the same direction was noted only in the non-lesion group. The authors suggest that there may be pathophysiological mechanisms unique to each group, but propose that specialized physiotherapy can effectively treat congenital muscular torticollis in both patients with and without sternocleidomastoid lesions. Thank you, Julia. That's it for this month. Please join us next month for part two of our review of the journal's May-June issue. 